All right, welcome, Brian. So today we have a guest for actually someone I met from five years ago. I think I don't know, six years ago maybe from FICA Theta when we were both involved in FICA Theta as eboard members, co-founders as well, not in the same chapter, co-founders of our own chapters, and we met on the national meeting. So a lot has changed since then. Back then, he was actually interested in very different things than he is doing right now. So I kind of wanted to go over that. He currently is a product marketing manager, which honestly, when I first heard about that, I didn't know what that was. So we're going to kind of dive into it a little bit into this podcast episode. And it will be pretty interesting because it's been a long time since we caught up. <laughs> so first off, Brian, do you want to kind of introduce yourself, give a little bit of background, what your hobbies and interests are? Sure. Uh, my name is Brian. I go where I went to UCR. And as Christine said, I work as a product marketing manager. I'm currently based out of California, not necessarily in the Bay Area, as you might assume from my background. But I like to say that because I'm moving back really, really soon. In terms of my hobbies, I picked up chess because of the pandemic the past year. And more recently, Christine introduced me to Clubhouse and I've been spending a significant amount of my free time there. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think about Clubhouse so far, by the way? Um, it's interesting. I think I personally like it a lot because the fact that you don't have to turn on your camera when you're talking and you don't have to dress up and all those different things they have to prepare for when you go into a video meeting. Um, and then it just, it's really like you're entering a whole new world. So like, for example, if you're having a bad day or if you're having even a good day and you want to hear about other people's days and meet like 10 or 20 people, sometimes even thousands of people in the same room talking about a totally different subject as if nothing ever happened. <laughs> um, that's kind of how I think about it. So I'll think about it as like a, either a podcast of sorts, like a live podcast recording, yeah. or even as like a convention where you yeah. can just meet kind of other people. We also had like a few situations too, where you were joining the, the PCT club room. Well, not a club yet, or at least at the point of this recording. Uh, and you also joined a lot of my technology consulting professional ones. So it was, it was great to kind of like hear about what you've been up to. So that's kind of also why I approached you for this podcast. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. So this is a icebreaker I ask everyone. And the question is, if you had all the time in the world, what would you be doing? If I had all the time in the world, probably go to every single country in the world. I think that's like a goal that most people have. Yeah. <laughs> or sorry, I think traveling is a goal that most people would say. But for me, I just feel like there's no time in my life to actually check off all 200 plus or whatever yeah. the official UN number is, <laughs> countries in the world. So I'd probably want to do that. Right now I'm at 26. I'm like one tenth of the way there. You're into solo traveling, right? So would you say mm -hmm. all of them, were they through solo traveling or did you go with friends? Um, I mean, I'm into solo traveling just because I think it's quote unquote more unique than just saying traveling as a hobby. Yeah. Um, I think most people, if not everyone, like no one ever says, oh, I hate traveling, right? But I think solo traveling is one of those things where it's fairly it's a fairly unique interest, yeah. I think. But that being said, like, of course, I've gone to other countries with friends, but I've also gone to other country alone. Mm -hmm. So so out of those, you said 26 countries, right? Mm -hmm. Out of those 26 countries, which ones were your favorite? My favorite? Um, I have a few favorites for different reasons, I would say. Um, Switzerland was surprisingly up there on top of my list. I didn't really know what to expect when I went to yeah. Switzerland, but it was just so beautiful and so like calm, I guess. And a really cool like music scene there too. So I like, I love traveling for music, especially. So they have a really cool like festival that they threw, which I happened to be there when it was, when this festival was going on. Um, and then another surprising favorite would have been Malaysia. And that's surprising because I'm half Malaysian as yeah. some people may or may not know. 
Um, and I think like it's just often overlooked. Like people go to Southeast Asia to go to Thailand, Vietnam, and all that fun stuff, which is great. But I think Malaysia is like an overlooked country that also has its own unique offerings. Mm, okay. All right. So we're going to move on to the next question, which is what are your aspirations in life? <laughs> aspirations in life. Um, I think professionally, of course, I want to start my own business one day. Okay. Um, I think it's kind of something that I was raised around just being like it, around my dad and my mom. So they own their own small business in Southern California. And I think that's kind of just the atmosphere I grew up in. And then of course, like with my career being primarily in startups, like getting to hear how the founders started their company and like kind of what they went through and finding co-founders and find, building a really great team and all that stuff um, just inspired me to, yeah, yeah, probably just end up being an entrepreneur. So that actually leads to the next question, which is what or who do you think shaped to you who you are today? Is it because of your parents that they have like their own small businesses that you want to start your own company? Or maybe like they instilled some certain values or characteristics in you that would want to start your own one? Um, definitely characteristics. I 100% agree with characteristics. I think like scrappiness is a word that's thrown around a lot in startup culture and I've always thought of it as just like another piece of jargon really but I realized like in hindsight like my dad was in incredibly scrappy like so he runs like a medical supply store like they essentially what they do is they sell PPE. and e yeah. <laughs> so um, he's been really busy since COVID um, <laughs> but I remember when I was young he would like literally take me on these trips not really trips but he would take me in his car to like just visit hospital by hospital and visit like pharmacy by pharmacy and like doctor's offices and stuff mm -hmm. just to drop off like flyers drop off like samples and things like it's literally just me and him doing these things um but that's part of what being scrappy is about right like you just kind of have to do things that don't scale until you can build a team that scales it so yeah definitely a sense of scrappiness is what he instilled in me yeah so would you say at this certain point in time that you are you work hard more than you work smart or a combination of both or do you think that you want to work smarter than being scrappy <laughs> that makes sense um yeah no that makes sense i think so I will always have a sense of scrappiness in okay. me. I think it's just because of that background that I come from. Because, um, yeah, I mean, I'm sure, like, it's this, this story is the same for most children of immigrants, is that, like, they didn't really understand American culture and, like, yeah. American values and how to move up in the corporate world, so to speak. Like, all they knew was just what they were doing, and they kind of zeroed in on what they were doing and just got really good at it, for example. Um, so I think there will always be a sense of scrappiness in my case. Um, and I hope that's evident in like kind of what my career has been like so far and where I plan on taking my career in the future. But of course, like working smart, work smart, not hard. You yeah. should always aim to do that. Yeah. So what is something that most people don't actually know about you? And I know you mentioned a little bit that before, but if you want to bring something else or maybe elaborate more on that. Oh, man. The first thing that comes to mind is I guess I'm more of a hopeless romantic than I originally thought because I've been literally the past two days I'm sure you knew this already but I've been obsessed with those shoot your shot rooms on clubhouse like they, they make me so either they make me really happy or they make me just laugh like crazy because it's so cringe mm. talk about that room a little bit because I see you in those rooms but I haven't actually gone in those rooms to see what exactly is going on in there oh man I, I'm, I'm gonna just spam ping you next time something funny <laughs> happens but basically the idea is like you have this like so on clubhouse you have like three different tiers of users right you have the speakers you have the people who are followed by speakers and you have the, the gulags they call it just the general public mm -hmm. um and then if you're interested in shooting your shot at someone else in the room all you do Ooh. is scroll down and find someone you're interested in uh you choose to raise your hand the speakers drag you up and you're able to say oh yeah i'm interested in 
so-and-so he or she or they or whatever are in the uh the uh the general populace mm. um and basically now what the speakers will do is they'll invite them up to speak if they accept then of course you guys can start a conversation you guys can exchange instagrams or whatnot if they say no then talk tough luck <laughs> on to the next one i guess is that like um, specifically for romance or is that also like maybe oh i want to do a business partnership with you i want to be friends with you yeah so i mean i think the idea behind all of them at least what the moderators want they want it to be romantic okay but i've there's been so many instances where like hey i want to shoot my a friend a shot or i want to shoot a professional shot to this okay. person and the moderators be like yeah sorry it's not now it's not the time and place for that <laughs> and i think they're doing that primarily because it's like valentine's day weekend yeah, yeah. so they want to set up like actual love interests all right that's that's interesting i'm definitely gonna look at that because i was just i don't understand what that club room was about but i was like oh interesting <laughs> so on a different note we're going to talk about your career now and you mentioned a little bit before about how you were interested in entrepreneurship and now you're a product marketing manager can you tell me like like why did you choose to go in that direction is this a stepping stone or do you think that you want to eventually maybe pursue this and then have like maybe a like a startup on the side so in this case like can you walk us through your career like how that lets you to where you are today and maybe some revelations you had mm-hmm um, sure. I think I'd have to preface everything I say here just by saying what Guy Kawasaki has said many times in the clubhouse rooms that I've joined. Um, basically, if you're a startup, you do one of two things, or at least you need people who can do one of two things. You need people who build shit and you need people who sell shit. And I'm clearly not the builder because I don't have a computer science background. Uh, well, I guess let me preface that by saying if you're in the world of technology, yeah. having a computer science background would be really useful. Since I am in the world of technology and I don't have that background, then clearly I can't build those things. I have to be the one to sell those things. Yep. So that's kind of how I've taken my career in the past. So obviously I started out in sales in the beginning. Um, and then I eventually moved my way into product marketing, which to some extent is like a support function of sales, I would say. Um, because you're not, even though you're not directly in the trenches as a salesperson, you are still enabling them. You're still building things that they would need to sell better and do things better and, and, and whatnot, mm. uh, and strategize on their behalf, really. Um, and I think that does translate pretty well into my future goals as entrepreneur, because, um, I mean, I think the words like technical founder mm. get thrown a lot yeah. in like Silicon Valley too. Like most CEOs actually come from that build shit background, right? Um, so for me, since I don't have that background, my biggest hurdle will be to find someone who can do okay. those things. So find a technical co-founder, whereas I'll be the non-technical founder. Um, but regardless, if you're a startup, you need someone who does both. Yeah. Or if you're lucky, like insanely lucky and really, really talented, then you can be the person who does both, which I've worked for companies whose CEOs were like that. Have you ever considered maybe learning some programming at some point? And it also doesn't have to be programming, right? There could be other things out there where maybe you can outsource it to somewhere else to do it for you. But like, what? Mm-hmm. why did you choose to go the business route? Or maybe if you if you do eventually want to do this, because I know you want to go to master's eventually, maybe it's going to be more on tech base or something like that. To end up that way. So I'd have to circle back to when I even began college to think mm-hmm. about like, why did I choose this route? Yeah. Um, but even when I was applying to schools, like I never once considered going into STEM. Okay. Um, except for physics. But at that point in time, I was super interested like in astronomy. Yeah. So that's what I would have wanted to do. Not like computer science, computer engineering or any sort of engineering, really. Like I, really, I was super interested in astronomy ever since I was a child. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think my background with my family just made sense for me to choose business as my major. Yeah. Um, and then entrepreneurship kind of came up 
relatively recently, I would say, at least in the grand scheme of my life, like maybe within the past seven to 10 years, I would say is when I decide like, I want to be an entrepreneur. Okay. Um, and then again, like having to use like my background, the resources I already have at my disposal, pivot to quote unquote into entrepreneurship. But with that being said, like, yeah, I've never, I've considered learning how to code and learn how to develop and stuff like that, but never seriously. I just don't think it's an interest of mine. Um, I'm more interested like in the psychology of the buyer, like yeah. the buying process, the selling process, and like how to differentiate the company from other companies and, and things like that. Yeah. I, I leave the building up to the experts. That kind of seems to be like a similar background to me. Like my, my mom was a small business owner. Eventually she's like started to grow a lot more small businesses as well. Works a little job on the side as well. My dad, he has a full-time job, but he always tries to think about something else on the side. Not ever was everything like a hundred percent full-time business, but because of that, I also want to go into business myself. And eventually I was like, oh, I like tech too. Like this is the future of the world. And I was kind of like on the crossroads. Should I go towards like doing business only? Should I do maybe a dual major, dual degree kind of thing? Or should I just do computer science? And then in the end, I just stuck with computer. No, (laughs) in the end, I just stuck with business and that I concentrated in management information systems. And now I'm a technology consultant. So kind of like in between rather than either or. But I, I also have like the same aspirations as you was like doing entrepreneurship at one point in my life. And honestly, I think like technically I am doing it now, but I don't want to accept it. I feel like I'm not. <laughs> but I think um, the moment I do is probably like, oh, now it feels like a job. Uh, so I, I guess like something that I'm kind of curious about for you is you started off with sales and you also call yourself an introvert. So mm-hmm. I'm kind of curious, like, what are some tips you have for all the introverts trying to get their footing in the corporate world with confidence? So either maybe like sales tips, maybe how to like project yourself and be confident at work, like all those kind of tips you have, because I think like there are some misconceptions here and there that you, if you're an introvert, you're antisocial or you're not outgoing. But I think it's the, I think that's completely false. I think it's just like how maybe you like to have your own, like, I don't know where you like to spend your energy. So I'm curious, like how, what are your tips for that? Because there's so many people out there who graduate and they want to do these really cool jobs, but they do require you to kind of socialize. I think there's two different points to be made here. One is how to succeed as an introvert in the corporate world. Um, so I'll start with the corporate world first. Um, I actually don't think it's that hard as an introvert to succeed in the corporate world. I mean, as you mentioned, like, yes, like there has to be some socialization involved in, in order to network, for example, or even interview and, and meet new people and things like that. But um depending on like the industry that you're going into of course or depending on like what jobs you're aiming for um you might actually like do better in those situations like are you the person who you get your energy from being around other people and that's the case maybe a job in like like development being an individual contributor like isn't for you right because it requires like you to sit at the desk and just code for for hours and hours on end and if you don't get the energy from doing that then maybe you should look somewhere else Whereas if you're an introvert, maybe you do thrive in those situations where you just need someone to just like stay really hands off and not have so many meetings and not mingle with all these different people across different functions and things like that, then maybe that would be for you. And you'd probably thrive in those settings and those interviews. So that's all I would say for introverts wanting to succeed in the corporate world. I don't really see it as that big of a hurdle to get over. Um, Now, as an introvert in the sales world, I would actually say that that is fairly difficult to get over. <laughs> and of course, I'm a little bit biased here because um, I went through it myself. Um, but I do think there are certain things that introverts can use to their advantage 
that can help them succeed in that world. So if you are an introvert and you're listening to this and you, for whatever strange reason you want to go into sales, um, I would think of it as like introverts, we tend to, it's not that we don't like to be around other people. We don't like to talk. It's just that we choose our words very carefully. Yeah. And more important than that is we choose when to say things very carefully, I would say. Mm-hmm. So if you have a great idea, like you're not going to want to like interject it or just blurt it out, right? Like you want to know when's the right time and place to say certain things. And that's actually a very, very important thing to, in, in sales because oftentimes like people think like, oh yeah, like it's all about pitching, right? Pitch, pitch, pitch. Like yeah. this car is great. Like it has... I don't know, like six different speeds and things like that. But um, part of the important part in sales is just being able to listen. So there's this concept in sales called the 60-40 rule where the customer should be talking 60% of the time and you should be talking 40% of the time. Um, and essentially what you want to do in those circumstances is let the customer rant. Like if they have a pain point they're experiencing with the product or service that they're currently using, let them talk, pry as deep as you can, just keep letting them talk, talk and talk. And then when you decide it's the right time to finally interject and say, okay, and this is why our product is great for you because you said X, Y, and Z um, are your pain points now. And we we address those by A, B, and C. Mm. So timing is very important. And I think as an introvert, you tend to pick up on those cues really, really well because you're not going to talk all the time, right? Like if you do say something, it better be a damn good like statement and it better be said at like a damn good time too, because it's it's nerve wracking for you. So I think that's a skill that introverts can use to their advantage. Interesting, because I actually say the same exact thing for consulting. <laughs> Most people are like, oh, if you are consulting all the time, you're going to be in these meetings, you'll be talking to clients, you'll be talking to your team members, don't you get exhausted? I'm like, yes, we do. But when it comes to consulting, you are supposed to be listening to what your client wants. If you don't listen, then what's the point of being a consultant? So I actually find myself listening more, asking questions to get more information before I say something. Uh, I, I do, I haven't really noticed though, because I think the consultants on my teams have been good, that extroverts, they don't just jump at it. They also kind of listen too, but I, I kind of also am more on the back burner and then speak when I have to, or speak when I want to, rather than speak because I want to speak. Yeah. And <clears throat> to be fair, like, I know that you said in the previous podcast, yeah. I believe that you were an introvert as well. Yeah. Um, not that extroverts can't do those things. Of course they can. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but I think that's just like a unique advantage because like, since introverts tend to be more careful with their words, they tend to only bring up things that are pivot, that are really, really important in that moment, I would say. And like in, in your context, right, as a consultant, like if you have an idea for a client, like if it's a good idea in your head, you definitely want to say it out loud because you don't want to lose the client. Yep. And as an introvert, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong here, but I'm guessing there's a much more thorough vetting process in your mind before you say something like, oh, is this actually important enough for me mm-hmm. to say, or is it not? So I just like, put in the back burner for later. So that's kind of what I would assume yeah. anyway. Yeah, that, that's kind of exactly what I do. I like before I even say anything, I just first need to do some kind of prodding a little bit here and there like, oh, what do you actually think is important? And then if I think that what they're saying is important, I'll say what I'm thinking. Uh, but mm-hmm. I definitely I mean, I can't really tell who's an extrovert introvert, but I will say in technology consulting, majority of them are introverts from the people I've asked. So, which actually makes completely sense because we are doing more technical work or more alone time where we're doing that build or whatnot or data conversion, whatnot. So that's like something where I get to thrive as an introvert. I don't have to have a meeting for a whole day. Having a meeting for a whole day actually really exhausts me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Zoom exhaustion is real. I feel you on that. Yeah. Especially these zoom calls here today, (laughs) especially from during the pandemic. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's why Clubhouse is so successful. Yeah. Yeah, especially like Clubhouse. 
it's funny because people think that extroverts thrive in there, but I think as an introvert, I, I can do perfectly fine just listening. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Agreed. Mm -hmm. All right. So you said that you're interested in entrepreneurship and specifically in tech. So I'm curious, like what about technology excites you? And do you plan on staying in tech startups up until the point you do want to have your own startup? Yes, I do. Mm -hmm. Um, so the first question was, why does technology excite you? And I think and there's a lot of different answers for this. Yeah. I think the first one is technology in terms of coming from like a business perspective is that it's much more scalable than more traditional industries, mm -hmm. right? So I used to be super interested like in CPG, like consumer packaged goods, or like toilet paper and Tide Pods and just the way that people buy those things, I always thought it was really interesting. So yeah. I'd like to use myself as a case study for this type of thing because I'm pretty like committed to specific brands. So I've literally bought the same brand of Tide Pods for the past like 10 years or so. <laughs> I've bought the same brand of toilet paper for the past 10 years or so. Wow. Because, and my, my roommates would tell you that's really annoying because I, I specifically say like, if you guys are going to buy toilet paper, you have to buy Charm and Ultra Soft and all those things. <laughs> not so, sponsored. Yeah, not sponsored. Um, but if you want to sponsor me, please. That's so me, not him. I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I've always thought that way people make buying decisions, at least for me personally, like my own psychology of why I'm so committed to a brand really mm -hmm. interesting. So that's kind of why I was, I was looking into CPG, at least initially, okay. like when I was in college, maybe. But then I realized like CPG is not as scalable as technology. So of yeah. course, like you have all these like variable costs that go into producing the product, you have to distribute it and logistics and all those things. Um, and I mean, technology has way higher margins than that, especially because of the cloud, like Salesforce really pioneered this where there's little to no like distribution costs. Like all you do is log into salesforce.com to get into your CRM, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that's one reason why I'm so interested in technology is that you can get a much wider audience a lot quicker. Like you don't need as many field sales representatives, for example, you just need a core group of like, I don't know, 10 or 20 people sitting in an office making cold calls to, around the world. And you can now all of a sudden you'll have a customer in India, or have a customer in China, Russia without doing much investing there. Mm -hmm. um, and for your other question, like, yes, I do plan on staying in technology for that's my career. And when I do start a, a business of my own, I do plan on making it a technology centric business. So if that's the case, like, is there a particular area in technology you're specifically interested in? Or do you think that you want to have your own startup or entrepreneurial efforts in that area? Kind of. So my background in terms of I don't even know if there's a word for this really, but what I'm passionate about, and I kind of alluded to this earlier, is that I come from a pretty labor- Blue collar. I'm trying to think of the term. Yeah, blue collar. <laughs> um, I come from a pretty blue collar background. Like I said, like my, like I'm a child of immigrants, like they own a store, literally like a, a brick and mortar store, right? Um, and I wanted to focus my career on that sort of thing. Like how do you use technology to make their lives easier? How do you use technology to um, help them scale and things like that. So I think in my background, you can kind of see a pattern of that. So for example, Yelp was promoted as the yellow pages of the 21st century. You're helping all these coffee shops, you're helping all these restaurants, grocery stores, um, I don't know, gift shops, souvenir shops, things like that, like get in front of more people over the internet. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how I like, uh, I, I justify that. <clears throat> like it, and Samsara is like kind of is the epitome of like a blue collar sort of technology company. Yeah. I mean, their core product offering vehicle fleet owners and people who like drive for a living essentially yeah. maybe not maybe not only drive but driving is a huge part of their of their of their jobs just making their lives easier safer cheaper faster all those things mm -hmm. um, and then my company after that like we were in the physical security space so what we were doing was just helping 
um, or making it easier for people to access security cameras remotely, no matter how many cameras they have, no matter where they are, no matter where their cameras are. And then in my current company, like, yeah, so I'm in the world of real estate now, like real estate marketing technology. So, um, I mean, the real estate industry in America is huge. Like, I mean, of course, people are always buying homes and selling homes. I mean, I know that you recently bought your home mm -hmm. and what ActivePipe is doing is making that process a lot easier and making it so that when people do express interest in buying a home, like their agents that are working with them, like send them properties they're interested in using technology. So okay. I do want to stay in that line of business. And I guess my TLDR there is that I'm not quite interested in technology companies or starting a company that sell to other technology companies okay. or that make products on behalf of other technology yeah. companies. I want to really focus on this like blue collar sort of industry. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense because like you're most familiar with it and even your family is from there too. Yeah. On top of that, it's virtually untouched or not untouched, I should say, but it's very hard to build a company in those spaces. Mm. Mark Andreessen has a really like good talk about this, but basically like the reason why industries like healthcare, construction, slash real estate, slash home housing, really, um, and education are are like so important for the 21st century is because yeah. until now it's been very hard to build companies that help those industries out. Okay. Um, and then on top of that, like there's a lot of regulation involved, but to make matters worse, those industries are actually getting more expensive as the world becomes more modern. So technology is a way of just driving that cost down. I feel like. Mm -hmm. Okay. So while doing that, you actually are a product marketing manager. And when I first heard that, I was a little bit confused. Like, what does that mean? Are you doing marketing? Are you working in product? So I didn't understand what that really was. So can you tell us like, what exactly is product marketing manager? What do you do on a day-to-day? -day? I know like probably every single person is probably going to say it depends, but kind of give mm -hmm. us like the lowdown or rundown of what kind of activities does that really consist of? Yeah, it depends would be the consulting answer I give. <laughs> um, but no, I, I mean, you're right. Like it really just, it does truly depend on the company that you're at. Um, so for example, if you're a product marketing manager at a much more product focused company, your job might be like 60, 70% product, whereas you're doing only 30% marketing, for example. Okay. For me, it would be the flip, I think. I would, I would probably safely say. So my job is much more marketing than product focused. Mm. Um, and that's because I'm the second marketing person at my company. Like I'm literally was the second ever person to join the marketing team. Oh, wow. Um, and then <clears throat> basically on a day-to-day, -day, I would split into two things. Like you're the voice of the customer. And I, I would say this is fairly, fairly true for no matter where you're a product marketer. You're the voice of the customer to the company and you're also the voice of the company to the customer. So okay. the first part is as the voice of the customer to the company, what you're doing is you're sorting through customer feedback and using it to build the product better, build more relevant features, improve the product in a certain way that can be more like customer focused, I guess, like made for the customer. Like a liaison? Um, yeah, yeah, more or less. So um, at least in my company, and this is of course different for all companies, what I'll do is I interface a lot with our sales team, with our customer success team, mm -hmm. with our implementation team, and I take what they're hearing from the ground floor and prioritize it, figure out like, does it fit in our product roadmap? Okay. Um, does it like align with things that are in our upcoming release cycle and our different sprints and things like that? So I work very closely with a product manager in that sense where he's the one who's actually like, like, like working with engineers and building stuff. Yep. Whereas I'm the one who's like bringing the requirements. So I should actually preface all of this by saying that there, we have two different teams. So we have an Australian team, which is where our headquarters is. Um, and then we have an American team where I'm working out of obviously. Yeah. Um, 
So my job is to primarily bring the U.S. marketing requirements to Australia and say, okay, like this is what we're hearing on the ground floor. Like this is the reasoning behind that. Um, and this is how we should build our product in the future. So that's the product hat I wear. And of course, that's very unique to my company because yeah. we do have this geographic divide between Australia and America and two very different requirements. Um, and then the marketing hat that I wear, I would say that's a majority of my job. And again, that's because like I'm the second marketing person in my company. Um, so that is much more like typical B2B marketing stuff, like running campaigns, monitoring okay. campaigns. I work very closely with my digital marketing manager uh, to launch like paid social, paid search, advertising, things like that, like various different things to like hack growth for the company. So I'm working on a referral program as we speak, so to speak. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how I would uh, break down my job. Okay. So a part of the role is focused on a specific product or are you doing it for all the products? So typically what I've seen at other companies is yes, if you're a product marketing manager at a large enough company, you will focus on a product. Okay. Um, but our company is not that big yet. So you can think of me as the product marketing manager for quote unquote, all the products. Okay. So how much of your sales experience and skills did you bring into this role? Um, a lot of it, okay. a lot of it. I, I have a pretty, again, I'm a little bit biased here too, but I think sales is something that every product marketing manager should do at least once in their lives. Mm. Um, and this is probably really relevant to what I was talking about earlier, where in sales, like you learn to listen rather than talk, right? So um, you tend to pick up on things, like for example, like customers will always say, they'll always give you improvements on how you can improve your product. But most of the time it's bullshit. Like most of the time they don't know what they're <laughs> talking about. Um, but sometimes there are like true like nuggets of like this gold that you yeah. really want, you should take to your product team. And being able to distinguish between the two, I think is a very important skill that I personally learned from sales that translated very nicely into my current job. All right. So I'm kind of curious about this. So like you mentioned that you would talk to the Australia team in this case, like would that be the product manager or the product owner? The product manager. In our case, it would specifically be the product manager. Okay. Okay. So would there ever be situations where you talk to the product owner? Um, so we're too small to have a product owner. Okay. However, um, I want to, there's a caveat here because we actually do have a product owner. Mm. So that's because of an acquisition that we had. Okay. So that's the only reason why we have a product owner, but I've actually never talked to him before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what kind of, um, if you were to recommend product marketing manager as a role to someone, who would that person be? What kind of person, what kind of things that they do, what kind of things they like, don't like? Yeah. So in terms of what they do, I think that's a fairly straightforward answer. I think if you come from a background that interfaces with customers or can think, put, your, put yourself in the perspective of a customer pretty easily and pretty well, then I would definitely say like what they do, or sorry, let me back up a little bit. Um, I would say that, that would be really helpful for being a product marketing manager. So sales, of course, marketing, of course, customer success, of course, implementation, sales, engineering, things like that. Um, I don't know if there's, there really isn't one sort of path to product marketing. So I come from a sales background, but I think the most common one is people who come from a marketing background, actually. Um, but on top of that, I know people who come from a CS background who become product marketers. I know people who come from a information systems, like what you're doing as a product marketer. Um, so I would, I mean, as, as long as you like understand who your buyers are, who your users are, what your personas are and, what, what makes the company, what, the, what makes the product you're selling special, then I think I would probably recommend that to them. 
Okay, so for anyone interested in becoming a product marketing manager, what tips or recommendations would you have to pursue it? Yeah, well, I can I can safely say that I got very lucky, first of okay. all. A lot of luck was involved in getting my job. Um, and I think it just kind of fit into the wider, like, kind of place the company was at. So the current company I'm at now, like, what sort of situation they were in when I joined and why I was a good fit for them. Okay. Um, so I come where my company before this company was an early stage startup. So I was essentially employee number five or six, depending on how you look at it, whatever. Um, so I oversaw like the go to market strategy from the very beginning. And part of my job now is essentially building a go to market strategy from scratch, even though the company is much older, much bigger and has, has product market fit in other markets. We're still trying to find, I would say product market fit in America. Okay. So it was really, really good opportunity for me to bring like the skills and things that I've learned in my old company, but put it into a setting where now versus now. So back then what we were trying to do was find product market fit and get our first few customers. Right. And now our task is now that we found our first few customers, how do we scale that to 10 X hundred X in the past, in the next like year or so. So it's very translatable skills and just the environment that you're in is also very similar, I would say. Um, but that being said, that does not apply to everyone because if you do get a job in an early stage startup, I would say you're pretty much ready for anything really. <laughs> early stage startups are not easy to work in. Um, but I say that with a lot of gratitude because I do appreciate my old bosses um, a lot at the company I used to work at. I learned an insane amount of things in a short amount of time. So with that being said, like if you can get a job in an early stage startup, like you can probably do anything, especially specifically in the world of startups because it's a very, very uh, tumultuous time in a company's history. Okay, so that actually does lead to another question. So when would you recommend someone to go through the startup route as opposed to a big company as like, let's say, for example, an entry level right after college? When? So I would have to ask you a question about that then. So when in the okay. sense of when is the right time to join a company? So based on what stage they're at or when in your career? Not when in your career, but more of like, what would they need to be looking for specifically from their career perspective, either like maybe for skills, experience, or maybe if they're interested in entrepreneurship or not. Because I know like, for okay. example, big companies, you will have a lot of resources and a lot of opportunities, probably startups, you wear a lot of hats, so you can get experience really quickly, but you mm -hmm. probably won't get the big scope compared to a big company where you can get everything depends on where you are moving around. Yeah, okay. So I think first find what you're good at, find out what your specialty is okay. and, <clears throat> and then branch out from there. So for me, coming from a sales background of two different companies at that point, like I knew that I was pretty good at sales. And um, in hindsight, like that was something, as I said earlier, that as a startup, you build shit or you sell shit. Um, obviously I'm more in that second category. So I knew that they could use me for like the selling stuff part. Um, so I would say if you're in college now, or if you're about to graduate and you're aiming for an early stage startup, it might be a little bit difficult because you quite you haven't quite identified your specialty okay. yet. So I, I think you want to focus on your specialty first, then eventually become a generalist. Um, and it's easier to do that if you were to join a bigger company first, work okay. there for a few years, like whatever that may be, and then kind of reverse a little bit. Okay, so you would typically recommend going big company, figure out what your specialty or niche or whatever you excel in, and then go over to the startups, as opposed to maybe going to the startups, can I get your feet wet and everything, 
um, I'm kind of curious because like I know in startups, they probably don't have the time or resources to kind of train you and guide you, but are there times where they will? Uh, I mean, like probably when it comes to a smaller startup, they're, they're able to work with you more because it's a smaller company. Well, a big company, they have like, here's a training program. I'm not going to really teach you. Probably there will be some mentorship program, but it's very siloed there. So like, what's your thoughts on that? Um, <clears throat> I would say no, no, I'll say okay. no, they, there definitely is little to no handholding. Okay. Um, and I think the reason why that is, is because if you do get into an early stage startup, they probably hired you because you've proved yourself somewhere else. Okay. Right. So for example, I was hired at this early stage startup because I knew, um, the VP of product in my old company, we were coworkers at my, our company before that. Mm-hmm. Um, and he knew me as like the salesperson who has worked on some deals with him. We worked together on some campaigns. So he's kind of seen my work already. Um, so I would say that, yeah, there, little, there is little to no handholding because once he hired me, he expected me to just continue what I was doing, yep. but not build it up for them right from the ground scratch. So yeah, I think what you said is right. Like at a bigger company, they might have an onboarding process, training program, all that stuff kind of shape you into the type of person they want you to be. Whereas in the early stage company, they expect you to bring the resources you took from those training programs and took from those onboarding programs to help shape this new like system or company, whatever you want to call it into, into like something that works. Interesting. So I think like uh, I, there is like an argument as well that maybe what you learn in that big company is suited for big companies, not for startups. So like what adjustments would those be? Because for example, if I say, this is how I would do marketing in a big company, then I do in a startup, it will be a lot more, like probably more focused on growth hacking. So I don't know if big companies focus on growth hacking either, but my, my guess is that the focus is different and maybe they even, correct me if I'm wrong, but maybe they even look down against people that are in big companies because it's different and probably not as innovative and out of the box. Yeah, I think that's a very, first of all, it's a good question. And second of all, I think that's a question that every podcast I listen to has brought up many, (laughs) many times. So I don't know if anyone knows the answer to this really. Um, Because there's an argument to be made that like, let's say you're an engineer who comes from Google and you go to an early stage startup, right? Like you already have the seal of approval from Google. You clearly know how to develop and, and all that stuff. So of course, like it makes sense to hire an engineer from Google. But as you said, like maybe they might not be quite as lean as an engineer as compared to like an early stage startup uh, engineer, or maybe like there's some innovation like lacking there, but I mean, Google's still innovative even as one of the biggest companies in the world. so yeah, I don't know. I think, uh, I don't know if anyone knows the answer to that really. I think like in terms of tweaking what you learn from bigger companies, like, yes, that's very, very true. So yep. of course, some things that you learn in a big company aren't relevant for a startup, right? Like that could be because of time constraints or because of budget constraints yep. really. But when you're a bigger company, I would say money really isn't an issue at that point anymore. Um, and timing isn't really an issue because you've already established some sort of market presence and you have significant market share, assuming you come from one of those really successful startup like time and money are are everything maybe less so money but more so time because you need to iterate really quickly you need to learn very quickly otherwise if anyone catches wind of what you're doing whether that is one of those bigger companies who's your competitor or another startup that's starting then yeah you're kind of screwed so um yeah short answer is i don't really know if there's an answer to that (laughs) okay so when it comes to working in startups this is something that i personally have not been involved in so i don't know how it's like but you did mention that like samsara actually is going public 
So mm -hmm. how is the compensation structure or how is that like compared to being in a big company? Because big companies, you get salaries, you get bonuses. What's the compensation structure for startups? Or maybe like, is it less? Is it worse? Or is it, is it less or is it more depending on what your role is? Is it like more focused on stocks or equity? It's definitely, it. yeah, I mean, I hate to say this again, but it really does depend, again, uh, <laughs> it depends on the company, depends on what you're doing for that company. So I can give you the perspective of sales versus engineering, because okay. that's probably the most distinct um, differences. So actually, maybe it's not as distinct as I would, as I'm poising it out to be. But so basically for sales, like in sales, you don't have as high of a salary as say an engineer yeah. would have, right? Of course. Um, but commission is where you make most of your money okay. because of course the company wants you to exceed company goals the company wants you to like just like not just hit your quota but but exceed your quota right yeah. because your success is their success type of thing so they're you're incentivized to do well by having uncapped commissions or even accelerators is what they call it so an accelerated commission mm -hmm. so say for example you hit your quota and then after you exceed your quota you actually make 1.5x of what your commission was past that point mm. or 1.25x of what your commission was up to that point um, and then I would say once you hit that level of exceeding your quota, it's pretty similar to an engineer's salary, I okay. would say. Pretty similar. Um, and also, again, it depends on where your seniority in the sales org, because like enterprise sales representatives, kind of like the, the, the top of the pillar, really, in terms yeah. of sales, like you're selling multi-million dollar, if not billion dollar deals to other multi-billion dollar companies, like they make probably on, they make, so... In, on their tax returns, they probably make more than I would say the CEO makes. Okay. They wow. make a significant amount of money. They make a lot of money. Um, however, on the flip side of that, like they do get an equity compensation because of course startups are incentivized to yeah. give their employees equity so that they feel like they're part of the organization. And once again, alluding to that whole, like your success is a startup success type of thing. So they want to give equities to make you feel that way. Um, so sales slash like go to market employees do get equity, but not as much as an engineer or a product person mm -hmm. might get. Um, so yeah, I really, again, like it really just does depend. It's like, I would look at it as like pie, really like how much of a pie you're getting in this side versus that side, whether that's money compensation or equity compensation or commission. It, yeah, it really just depends, I would say. Okay. So when you leave a startup, what happens to your equity? Do you sell it back or do you technically hold it still? Um, so it depends as always. <laughs> um, so there's, there's like a typical startups with the follows like a, a four year vesting period with a one year okay. cliff period, which means you in order to have any of your equity, like even start vesting in the beginning, you need to stay there for a minimum of one year. Um, and then anytime after that, it's kind of just like all like the equity that you were allocated in the beginning just starts vesting after that. Okay. Um, so in my case, since all that Samsara for a little over a year, uh, I had all my equity vests up until the year mark. And then like, they also break it down like into like prorated areas. So I was there for like, like, I don't know, a year and three days or something like that. So invested for that year mark and then like the additional three days too. Mm -hmm. um, but in terms of selling it, like uh, I'm, I'm actually a little bit confused in that process myself really. <laughs> um, but uh, I do know that I am not planning on selling it until I think it's worthwhile. Mm -hmm. So on that note, I'm curious, when you have your own startup, do you plan on keeping it and just keep on running it to be the next big like company out there? Or did you plan on wanting to sell it or move on to another startup and be like a serial startup entrepreneur? Like what's your goal in entrepreneurship? 
Yeah, uh, that's an interesting question. Um, I don't really know, okay. quite honestly. It really just depends on the idea. Because I've had ideas like in the past, actually one of my roommates that I live with right now, I've worked on a few ideas with him before. Um, but I, I was never in love with them to the point where I can take this, I can see myself taking this to an IPO or mm -hmm. to the end goal, of course, or taking this to an idea or taking this idea to like a point where I want to stay with it for 10, 20, 30 years or whatever it is. Okay. Um, so that's actually part of the reason why I want to go to grad school is to give myself more time to find the idea I'm in love with and then take it to an IPO or whatever. But with that being said, I'm not like kind of married to the idea. Like if, yeah. I, if I find the idea, I'm still like in love with, but if I think it makes more sense to sell or, yeah. or, or whatever, then totally happy to do that. Okay. So you mentioned grad school. What are your reasons and what did you hope to achieve there? Um, I think three distinct reasons. The first one is, I mentioned this just now, the giving myself more time hmm. situation. Um, not that like, oh, I'm like scared. It's like analysis or paralysis by analysis, I guess is the term, right? Not that I'm scared to do it right now. Cause I think if I did act on an idea now, I could probably take it somewhere. Yeah. Even though that sounds very like a, very like egotistical of me. Um, I just haven't quite found an idea that I'm utterly obsessed with yet. And that's what I mean by I want to give myself more time to find and think about the idea that I'm obsessed with. And this is actually a realization I had in my old company where technology is just a means to an end. Like technology enables people to do things. So for example, um, if you want to like have, like, I don't know, for whatever reason, if you want to run like multiple podcasts and multiple webinars at the same time, right? Like it's probably gonna put a huge strain on your internet. Yeah. Um, it's probably going to put a huge strain on like your electricity bill or things like that. So that's the problem statement right there. That's, that's something that technology can help with ideally yeah. in the future. This actually kind of alludes to my second point of wanting to go to graduate school is to find out what technologies are like pioneering at the moment. And then me myself personally think about what problems can they solve in the future? Because everyone says like, oh yeah, technology is a product. Like, oh yeah, we're selling AI or we're selling IOT and we're selling cloud technology. Like, no. Cloud technology, AI, IoT, those are all enablers. Those help yeah. you achieve certain things. Those, those things help you scale Salesforce to hundreds of thousands of people across the country, across the yeah. world, um, and things like that. So um, another reason why I want to go to grad school is to be like on the forefront of those things. Like what technologies are exciting? What technologies are people working on? And then me, myself personally, I would then go through the thought process of like, okay, like how can this be used to solve a pain point that maybe Christine is experiencing or that I'm experiencing and things like that. So just learning more about that. I'm kind of confused though, because I feel like you would get that perspective from being in startups or from trying to talk to like other, other startup founders rather than being in school where they're going to show you case studies or I don't know, depending on like what kind of programs you're looking at, maybe they do do that exactly. But um, I thought like you would get more of that perspective being in startups and really hearing it from the ground level. I would actually argue the opposite, really. I think if you're talking to a startup Co like founder or talking at working for a startup, for example, these technologies must be quote unquote safe enough to use in a company context, right? Yeah. So for example, like let's say natural language processing, like um, it's not perfect, of course, because when you talk to Siri, like it, she misinterprets what you're saying sometimes, <laughs> um, but like it's safe enough to the point where Apple bought the parent company of Siri and introduced it to millions of people around the world, right? Okay. Like it's yeah. pretty like, it's pretty well made and by now it's like pretty established. Um, and that's how I would think of for like most existing startups now. Whereas if you're in a setting, like an academic setting, especially 
where you're going to school with people of various different backgrounds. Maybe some people do have that computer science background. Maybe they've worked for natural language processing companies in the past, or AI companies or whatever. They're, they bring their experience to graduate school. They know kind of how, like what's on the forefront of technology nowadays, like what's gonna be big in the future. And they've worked on problems like that in the past. And that's why I would say the academic setting is much more useful than that, for that situation. Cause you have all these different people from different walks of life yes. doing different things. And then on top of that, not to mention just the research part of being in a university setting, mm -hmm. right? Because of course, like say for example, Stanford, right? Like they have a world renowned computer science program and part of their curriculum is that you can actually choose and take some of your credits at yeah. program if you so wish to. So putting yourself in a situation where you're forced to mingle with professors who are working on the next big ideas in technology or mm -hmm. working with students who are studying the next big ideas in technology. So I would actually say the academic setting is much more is more useful for that sort of thing. Okay. So where are you in your grad school journey? Are you like still trying to take the GMAT or the GRE or are you trying to, are you already applying at this point? Uh, no, I haven't applied yet. My, the, so I'm applying this year, Okay. Um, but the application cycle hasn't opened up yet until fall. Mm -hmm. So now I'm still in the preparation phase. I mean, I've attended plenty of events, uh, both actually, no, not in person, what am I saying? Just virtual events really. <laughs> um, um, and I have a pretty good idea of where I want to apply. Um, on that note, I haven't taken a GMAT yet or the GRE. I definitely should. <laughs> I've just kind of been procrastinating on that. Um, but yeah, just very early on, like I, the only thing I've done is just narrowed and uh, kind of, yeah, narrowed in on where I would like to apply and where I want to okay. go. Okay. All right. So I, I kind of want to backtrack this back because I'm kind of curious now that we were talking about startups and then we were talking about grad school is how is it really like working in Silicon Valley? Are there misconceptions on working there? Is it really as like cutthroat and hardworking and I don't know, maybe like booze and girls everywhere? Like it depends on where you talk to, I guess like it depends, but I'm curious, like, how is it really like? <laughs> Um, well, the girls part, definitely not. There is okay. a huge gender inequity in Silicon Valley. Um, I think, yeah, there's, there's a lot of male, like Silicon Valley is a very male dominated yeah. industry. And I think like companies are finally starting to realize that. So there's all the initiatives to hire um, women, people of color, minorities and um, um, disenfranchised communities and things like that. So that's great. Um, booze, uh, I probably, I might get in trouble for staying this but yes <laughs> um, but i mean with that being said i think that's just a young person thing anyway like okay. if you're living in a metropolitan area and you work and you're pretty young so you don't get nasty hangovers quite yet in your life um and you work in a corporate job like that's let's say that's part of working culture really um and then um in terms of if it's actually like what is portrayed in say like in the media and whatnot um i can't really give you an answer on that because it's all i've ever known mm. like i don't really know what the I don't really know if it's normal or not, I guess is okay. my point. Because to me, it's normal, but I've only yeah. I've always been in Silicon Valley. So I guess like what I, I thought of how startup culture would be like in Silicon Valley is that you have like a, uh, maybe you're working in a big startup and then some people within the same startup or other startups kind of work in their basements and try to do their own thing and constantly trying to work on their own thing while working on some other job before it takes off. Or mm -hmm. maybe that there's like startups that are trying to take their pie from another company because they are kind of competing. Like it seems like cutthroat in terms of the hours, in terms of maybe like stealing ideas and intellectual property or even poaching employees. So I'm curious, like if you had any exposure to that area. 
Not personally, no. However, I would actually, I would probably agree with you that that is fairly common. Okay. Not because there's any sort of like malicious intent really of like stealing an intellectual property and whatnot, but um, there's a huge like talent demand in Silicon Valley because okay. there's so many companies popping up yeah. trying to take like all these talented engineers and, and, and whatnot uh, for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that's part of, I think the risk of opening a, com- a company in the Valley is that like, you're always trying to think of ways to keep your best employees because yeah. they know, like, you know, that they could be getting an offer from another really interesting company and your engineers or whatever are talented enough to get a job wherever they want to. Right. Um, so it, I would say it is pretty cutthroat in recruiting, especially um, in terms of like work life balance and working overtime and whatnot. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I guess I would also agree there. Um, but Again, it also depends on your function. Yeah. So I think sales especially is one of those things where it was pretty straightforward eight to five because your hours revolved around your customer's hours. Yeah. So, I mean, because of, of course, they're not at their office picking up the phone or answering their emails or whatnot, then who are you talking to, right? There's no point in you being on the books anymore or being um, clocked in anymore. Um, so yeah, it, it once again depends on what your job is. <laughs> okay. And uh, my guess is that you actually prefer to stay in Silicon Valley, right? Um, in terms of like where I live or where I want to work? Both. Like if you were to have your own tech startup later on, would you want to stay in Silicon Valley or would you want to go to like, I don't know, Austin, New York, Boston, go to their little startup hubs? Yeah, um, I don't know. That's a good question. Again, that's something that's also been brought up in Clubhouse a lot too. Um, I think... I'm leaning towards staying in Silicon Valley um, just because, I mean, like it's kind of hard to beat the weather here, really. (laughs) Um, And then on top of that, like I grew up here. I I like to call myself a son of California. So I love California, of course. Um, But I think more and more people are actually starting to think about moving out of the valley because like, sure, like I wouldn't say it's easier to find venture money here, but like it's it's easier to see venture money here because just drive down Sand Hill Road, you see the offices of all the big VCs there. But um, I think even those guys are thinking about opening up satellite offices in Austin, Nashville, and I don't know, whatever other like up and coming tech hubs are coming up. Um, so I think, yeah, I think, yeah, the world is, or not the world, but like Silicon Valley is slowly thinking about going to other satellite areas. Okay. And one of the questions I have is what else do you do outside of your job? I mean, like we mentioned before that the work-life balance for you at least is decent other than the fact that you have to work with Australian time zones sometimes. So on your own free time, other than being on Clubhouse, like what are your hobbies and interests outside of that? I mean, clearly not with traveling because of COVID, but like I see you're doing other things out there. So I'm just curious. Yeah. Um, so chess, as I mentioned earlier, like once COVID dies down a little bit, I do want to start playing chess, like not professionally, of course, but like start entering like amateur tournaments and yeah. get into the world of chess. Mm-hmm. Um, what they call it over the board chess, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is one thing I kind of want to do in the future. Um, and I also recently joined a, like a nonprofit called y mm-hmm. Uh They do like essentially nonprofit consulting for like nonprofits in the Bay Area. Um, so I had my first meeting there last week. So there's not much I can, I know to say yeah. yet so far, but, um, yeah, I'm working. So basically what y does is they help nonprofits in the Bay area with really anything that they need essentially. So the project that I'm on is with the, with a nonprofit called friends for youth. It's very similar to like a big brothers, big sisters model yep. where they, uh, it's like a mentor mentee program. You have like 
either like college kids or high school kids or like people like working and even beyond that actually just paired with the child um, for minimum of a year and then they kind of help them with like like just growing up because right now it's a tough time in the world right and then our project is focused around like how to have better alumni engagement and and retention and whatnot interesting yeah i was actually going to be talking about why course so i'm curious as to like i was going to ask you earlier and this one is consulting this one is startup life before so why did you choose to pursue sales or marketing or startup life as opposed to the strategy and operations consulting you wanted to do back then <laughs> I think I didn't have an idea of what that really entailed because <clears throat> I did actually, when I graduated, I did interview at some consulting firms a little bit. Um, and then once I got to like the final round, the second to final round, I realized that it wasn't what I thought it was okay. really. Cause um, so yeah, so I actually did interview for a few consulting firms when I graduated or towards the end of my graduation really. But I think I learned pretty late into the interview process that it isn't actually what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. I knew for a fact I wanted to work hand in hand with clients. I knew for a fact I wanted to focus on a customer. Yeah. But um, I feel like when you're, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but when you're an entry level consultant, it's actually much less of that and much more of like spreadsheets and things like that, right? Or I guess it also depends on what type of consulting you're doing. Yeah, it depends on your client, depends on the project, depends on the role, like <laughs> all of those depends. But I will say I never had a single time where I did not talk to the client. Like even in my first two months of my role, I actually was leading a meeting with the client. But then again, that was a smaller project that was a project with like only 30 people as opposed to maybe like a big project with 100 people. Uh, but I do see what you're talking about, because I know a lot of management consultants and strategy consultants, they do a lot of Excel sheets, building decks, and just giving it to the consultants to actually do the work. But mm -hmm. like, I do see that. However, like in tech consulting, it really isn't like that. We don't have any spreadsheets other than maybe for data conversion. And we don't have PowerPoints. We do more demos. We do have PowerPoints too, but we kind of reuse, recycle, like that kind of thing. Just put the new client name on there, maybe change a little bit of things here and there to make sure it's more fit for the client. Mm -hmm. But like, that's a full, that's like really the only extent and even some take notes, but like even consultants and managers take notes too. So yeah, it depends upon the role, depends on the firm, depends on like, what is the client even wanting you to do? So yeah, but I can see what you're talking about. But in, in hindsight now, because you have experience at this particular point, would you want to go into consulting at any point where now you're not coming in as an analyst, but maybe as a consultant? So in hindsight, in hindsight, like knowing my experience I've had so far, yeah. if I were to make a career change into consulting now yeah. is what you're asking. Okay. Um, to be honest, no. Yeah, okay. no, I wouldn't. Um, I think I've gotten kind of my fix of customer interaction and just okay. thinking about the customer. And so, yeah, I, I probably, I wouldn't want to, okay. no offense, <laughs> no offense to you and your audience. <laughs> no, consulting is not for everyone. <laughs> All right. So can you also tell us about what is the startup school? I see you're like a Y combinator. I'm like, what does that even mean? <laughs> oh man. Okay. I should probably take that off because um, I get, I get asked this a lot actually, but okay. it's not as impressive as everyone thinks. It is. So Y combinator <laughs> is an accelerator in Silicon Valley, they sort of pioneered this idea of like, anyone's welcome to apply 
Um, you're able to pitch your company to us. And then if we like it, if we choose you, you get $100,000 and in return, you give us 7% of the company. Mm. So it's just like really like kind of um, sequential, like sort of every year or sorry, twice a year. Either twice a year or three times a year, either two or three times a year, they'll say like, okay, new cohort, summer 2020, then winter 2020, then spring 2020. So it is three times a year, I think. Um, will those take a new batch of startups? Mm-hmm. Um, and they got really, really good at it because some of their like companies that came out of Y Combinator or Dropbox, Airbnb, um, probably a ton of other ones that I don't remember off the top of my head right now. But um, so that's actual Y Combinator. Like there's a lot, like a lot of successful companies have come out of Y Combinator. And if you're looking up like anything startup related on YouTube or on Google, chances are it was either made by Y Combinator, like the content itself, or it's an alumni of the Y Combinator program. Like they're pretty ubiquitous in Silicon Valley. Um, What I did was definitely not the cohort, the actual Y Combinator (laughs) cohort. It was what they called startup school. So kind of like a preliminary thing. Yeah. Um, It's free for all. You don't even have to apply. You just kind of have to just enroll yourself in it. And then what they'll do is, so the only caveat is you have to come in with an idea or at least a project that you're working on already. Um, and then you have like all these lessons like that are kind of given for free over the internet and in video format um, in terms of like, how do you find product market fit? Like, like how do you raise funding and things like that? It's like stuff like you typically also find on YouTube or Google or whatever, but a much more like um, presentable format. And then on top of that, what I found really useful from it is just so every week you have to interface with other participating members of the Y Combinator program. So these are actually people who are either working on a product and they are either working on an idea or just have an idea really. Um, so that's what I did. I just did this sort of like startup school boot camp thing. I didn't do the actual cohort thing. Did you have to pay to do it? No, it's free. Oh, that's nice. So if anyone's yeah. interested, they could just apply right now. Yeah, yeah, more or less. Uh, you can do it. You just have to have an idea or a project you're working on. And I met some really, really cool, really smart people. And I actually think during my like sort of rotation between like every week meeting with different, I think four other startups or something like that. Um, I met some people who actually did end up getting funding that oh, round. Wow. And now they're like sort of, they're, I'm sure they're still working at their company, but yeah, it's kind of interesting to see how, how far it's been or how long it's been cool. or how far we've come. Yeah. So see how you're very into entrepreneurship. Are you currently onto something? Do you have any ideas? How far have you gone? <laughs> um, am I onto something? Kind of. I have like different, I mean, I, I live my life sort of thinking about ways mm-hmm. how things can be better, yeah. <laughs> um, which is both a blessing and a curse. But mm-hmm. in terms of like anything I pursued, no. So I want to ask you, how did your experience at Phi Chi Theater help you today? Um, so I think it surround, oh, this is probably the most cliche answer ever, but it surrounded me with people who helped keep me in check Yeah, is the biggest thing. Um, I mean, I met some of my best friends there. I live with one of them right now. Um, yeah, helped keep me in check. And I think that's actually something that was really rewarding about PCTs because mm-hmm. I watched other people have the same experiences as I do. Like, they found people that kept them in check. They found people that they started companies with. Mm-hmm. They found people that they uh, ended up dating or whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's that's how PCT has changed my life. So what was your favorite memory with Fika Data then? So I would say it wouldn't have been a specific instance, but just a course of different instances of hearing from people that PCT changed their lives, mm-hmm. really. So for example, either at an event or after an event, 
um, or just in direct one-on-one -on -one conversations, like hearing from people like, like, hey, so my nickname was BK throughout the fraternity, yeah. but they would say, hey, BK, like, thanks for starting this. Like, it really helped me meet my best friends or helped me um, find my co-founder my co and whatnot. I would say those things are what was most gratifying um, and, of course, memorable instances of PCT. And I alluded to this earlier because I had those same experiences. By no means am I claiming credit for those types of things. But the reason why they're so gratifying is because I had the exact same yeah. sort of experiences myself. All right. So lastly, if you had any advice for collegiates in PCT, what would you say? I would say, I mean, and this advice would just be general collegiate advice. I don't think okay. it's too specific to PCT, really. But and this is actually general career advice that I got from someone I look up to a lot, which is like, it matters more where you work rather than what you do for those companies. Mm. Um, so uh, Andy Ratcliffe, he worked, he's a CEO and founder of Wealthfront, which is just like, like this helps you invest and stuff like that. And he publishes a list of career launching companies every single year. Um, and always on top of that list is the words or something along the lines of like, it matters where you work, not what you do for those companies. Yeah. And the idea behind that is I'm about to list to you, um, it'll launch your career in a positive trajectory. And I was fortunate enough to work at one of those companies at some point in time. Um, and as he said, and I'm living proof of that, it didn't really matter what I do because mm -hmm. now I'm in a totally different function, right? I work in product marketing. I used to work in sales at that company. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's, so that's one piece of advice I would give to collegiates is that it doesn't really matter what you do. It matters much more where you work at, what, what point in your career you work there, at what point in the company life cycle are they at, what sort of impact you'll have on the company, so to speak. Um, then on top of that, I would also say in hindsight, when you do reflect back on your life to see how far you've come or, or if you're like me, really, like, because you need to apply to grad school and you need to like you need to take a look at the past five years of your career, have a very good justification for all of it. Yeah. Like have a very, very good justification of why you moved from company to company, why you moved from function to function and things like that. So the TLDR there is, yeah, have a clever way to justify everything you've ever done. All right. So I think we can wrap that up. So on the case of where can we find you on social media? <laughs> LinkedIn. LinkedIn. Just LinkedIn. Yeah, just look up uh, linkedin.com slash in slash Brian Kwan. How about Clubhouse? Oh, yeah, Clubhouse, of course. Clubhouse uh, so is it's not social media. Kwan. I know, yeah. So at Brian Kwan on Clubhouse. Um, funny enough, so I, I, I hosted a Clubhouse room just about like Samsara IPOing in March, like yeah. two days ago. Um, a bunch of random people joined, and we ended up only talking about Samsara like 10% of the time. <laughs> the other 90% of the time, we literally talk about anything but Samsara. Wow. Um, but the thing is, like, I opened up, like, or sorry, I didn't open up a room. I might have pinged you into this room, actually. But my friend, who actually did work at Samsara with me, opened up another room yesterday um, with no topic this time. Mm -hmm. uh, but when I joined, all those people who saw me in that original Samsara room joined the second room. And now <laughs> what we want to do is start doing this, making this, like, essentially this weekly topicless room. Um, oh. So it's like my, my only thing and everything. Pretty much, yeah. And so that's my shameless plug there. If you're on Clubhouse, join our weekly topic list of rooms. <laughs> so that's actually kind of funny because like now I'm going to bring it back to the side hustle. Do you think you would want to make some kind of side hustle out of Clubhouse? 
Um, nothing monetized because I hate the word monetize and I hate the word monetization. Um, but you're gonna just, be a, you're gonna be like an entrepreneur. You kind of need to think about that. Okay, fair enough. You got me there. Um, <laughs> I hate it in the context of social media and, and, okay. and influencers. I yeah. guess and that's a whole other conversation yeah. that you already know. But side hustle wise for Clubhouse, I look. I just think it's an interesting place. And this might have been. I hope that Paul. What's his name? Paul Davison and Rohan thought of when they were building this company, but it's interesting how they give voice to the voiceless now. Like literally, yeah. if you're not a clubhouse, like you don't, there's no sense, or to some extent there is still status, right? Because the whole yeah. three different tiers of users and then like Grant Cardone coming in, everyone already knows what he is. So he immediately got half a million followers and whatnot, but every, there's a level playing field in terms of how big of a voice you have, right? Because you either mute or get muted or you're all in the same sort of pile right next to each other, right? Yeah. So there's a level playing field in the sense that your voice is just as important as someone else's voice. So yeah. your ideas are just as important as someone else's ideas. And that's what I love about the app so much. So mm -hmm. if I can use that to just get different ideas from people who aren't like Grant Cardone level or Gary Vee level, just mm -hmm. like quote unquote commoners like myself, but they have passion about something, then yeah, I would love to use that as a side hustle, just a way of just getting people to talk about things they care about. Um, yeah, that's probably the biggest reason why I love Clubhouse so much. Imagine this is how you find your technical co-founder. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure that's happened plenty and plenty of times already yeah. so far. Um, yeah, I think a lot of people have already gotten like proposals. I think there was a marriage on Clubhouse. Ooh. Someone gave birth on Clubhouse. What? Um, yeah, yeah, this lady was uh, not streaming, but like, uh, yeah, she gave birth on Clubhouse. So everyone could hear it. Yeah. So she was like um, talking and then it just happened? No, no, no. Like she was, I think she was literally at the hospital, like with her phone on next to her on the bed and gave birth. I think I heard this, this happened. I wasn't actually in the room. So I have to look it, but I'm pretty curious now. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's my only sort of side hustle. Like if there's an interesting idea that I would like to learn about or an interesting idea that I want to hear people's opinions on, because that's what really gets me going. I think my passion in life is just hearing yeah. what other people are passionate about in life yeah. and just watching them while I talk about it. That's what gets me excited. Um, so like, for example, an idea of a clubhouse room I like to start is like this whole situation in Myanmar. Like there's mm -hmm. essentially an assertion by the military in Myanmar. They, they're, yeah. they held like the prime minister or president, I guess, captive um, for a while. So if anyone's actually in Myanmar, I would love to get their idea on like mm -hmm. what they think about it. Like what they're, if maybe like the international news is kind of skewing things a little bit. So yeah, yeah that's why that's my only sort of side hustle on clubhouse, yeah. I guess. All right. So on that note, what have you been up to lately? <laughs> clubhouse. <laughs> <laughs> and so I guess the next one is what can we do to support you other than following you on LinkedIn, following you on clubhouse? Um, to support me. Join your Please. topic list rooms. Maybe that's it. Yeah. That's, yeah, pretty much. I would assume so. Like, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't really say that that would support me. Of course it would support me yeah. because it'd be interesting to hear from anyone who's going to listen to this podcast or whatever. But um, yeah, if you have a unique idea on life mm -hmm. or unique like a uh, prospect or uh, I'm blanking out right now, if you have a unique, any sort of like unique opinions about any topic whatsoever, like I'd love to hear that from you. Yeah. Um, no matter what's it about. I really frankly do not care what it's about, yeah. but that's the way you can support me. Just tell me your ideas about anything and let's start a conversation about it. Yeah. And if you're interested in becoming a tech co-founder, reach out to him. <laughs> <laughs> if you, if you get to that point, I don't know. I don't know, but we'll see depending on where this video lands and then when you are 
like where you are in your career at that point when they listen to this video, but <laughs> all right. So last one, do you have any words of advice for our listeners? Um, keep doing what you're doing. Keep watching Christine's videos. <laughs> um, um, keep asking questions and yeah, I mean, if you're interested in technology consulting as a career, again, like Christine has a bunch of interesting content, a bunch of useful resources for you to use. And for both, I want to do a shameless plug. We do weekly clubhouse rooms. So if you want to learn more about, we also have the technology consulting community one. I'm actually in the process of, I requested for two clubhouses already. So now it's just a matter of like waiting for it to happen. But for that one, we do more themed on tech or tech consulting. It's not actually specific on just tech or tech consulting. It's like could be broad, but it will be kind of along those spectrums. So if you guys are interested, definitely follow me on Clubhouse and follow Brian. He will probably be in almost all of them anyways, because he's so obsessed with Clubhouse. He might as well just invest in them if he has money, of course. But yeah, definitely follow him. All the social media handles are down below. And yeah, just would be really great if you guys could support him. Thanks, Christine. This was fun. <laughs> yeah, so we're going to wrap it up here. And thank you so much for being our podcast guest. Bye.